Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening to my listeners today out there in V Radio land. This is V Radio. If this is your first time tuning into V Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org. There you can find archives of more shows like this one, interviews with film, documentary filmmakers, activists, scientists, uh, politicians, the few good ones. <laughs> um, also there you can check out my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries that you can watch on the Internet that I recommend. Um, today my guest is Philippe Diaz, the filmmaker of two excellent films, The End of Poverty and The Empire in Africa. Um oh. Today, Hi, how are you? <laughs> yes, welcome, Philippe, to the show. Um, Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, i got to tell you, your films had a huge impact on me. I mean, I always Thank knew Im- imperialism was a problem, but I, I never realized just how like long like ago. the you know It was the same system that the, the Spanish and the, the French and the British were using before. Is this the same? It's the same thing they were doing now in the United States, and then... Uh, I had caught your film, The Empire in Africa, afterwards, and there were some sequences in that film that just absolutely changed the way I look at Africa forever. But before we get into that, let's start with you know who you are to kind of give the audience an idea. So the first question I always ask someone to my show is, what was the moment in your life that caused you to decide to become an activist? Well, I, I don't think there was really a moment per se. You know, I was always interested in two things growing up when I was young in Europe, in France. You know, well, it was movies, of course. I started to make movies. Uh, I was 12 years old, and uh, and and also like suffering, suffering. You know, inequalities. You know, why I never understood why people should suffer in today's world when we have plenty of resources, and you know, there are so many studies, of course. I discovered that later, of course, but you know that shows that if the wealth, if today's wealth was split more equally between people, there would not be any starvation, there would not be any suffering, there would probably be no war. How's that? And uh, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 if you want, I always, you know, I I always had a hard time to deal with this suffering that I saw everywhere, and you know, and I I would say I'm probably not courageous enough to take a weapon and fight, you know, so I decided to take a camera and do what I could because, you know, I had a long, you know, I started to make movies, it's true, like when I was 12 years old and I, I made a producer, I produced a lot of feature film documentaries and uh, and directed some, as you explained, and I saw that movie can make a difference. So, of course, not as violently, which is good, than a weapon, maybe not as efficiently, but on the long term, maybe more efficiently. And and it's why I decided to you know to put all my resources in making movie to make a difference. You know, doesn't matter if they are feature film or documentaries. Documentary have a more direct impact, but feature film have a larger audience. So you know, so I think we can in in both scenario you know like have have a direct impact and have, have a real impact on people. You know, and change their mind of course because I believe that most of this problem comes from the lack of education. It's because we don't know. That and of course because nobody wants us to know. It's much more convenient to have people who don't know than people who know. And you know, and 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 because we don't know, of course, we think that you know things are like that. And you know, and but as soon as we get the information, you know, I can tell you, you were talking about the end of poverty. The end of poverty went in probably like 47 international film festival, and I tried to go 
to go with the movie as much as I could, not in 47, of course, but in several of those. And all around the world, you know, people finish the, the, the movie with pretty much their mouth open, saying, oh, my God, we had no idea, we, don't, we didn't know. And, and after we have hours of debate, you know, about discussion about the film, you know, about not what can we do. And that's what is interesting. That's why I'm making these kind of movies, because I think that, you know, it can create some, some, some reaction in, 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 in the part of the audience, you know, an educated audience as a non-educated audience. I think that you've definitely accomplished that even with both of these films. And I think that a large part of it, especially in the West, is that a film in a lot of ways is more powerful because it allows people to kind of get a window into what it's really like in these countries. I mean, I knew it was bad in Africa, but until I watched, you know, Empire in Africa and the portions of End of Poverty that are about Africa, I did not truly grasp the just the right. sheer brutality that's going on over there is just like there are there's one part of uh Empire in Africa where those soldiers are grabbing that child who can't be more than seven right. or eight years old. I mean, and throwing him in a truck and all that. I was just like, and they were torturing him. I mean, it was right. horrible. And you just, you're trying to imagine yourself for a moment, even beginning to think on the mentality that's in these men's minds to think that this child, because of whatever tribal membership he has or something deserves to be treated that way. And, you know, I think that, the West is kind of desensitized to it or maybe, you know, sterilized to it would be the word I would use because I don't think it's accidental. I think it's on purpose. I think that a lot of the, the truth of these situations are kept from us. And, of course. Um, something I frequently talk about, you know, is, you know, like Darfur, for example. You know, we were all talking about how we needed to go into Iraq because of all the terrible things that Saddam Hussein did to the the Kurds, like, way back in the 80s. And I was like, you know, I agree that the things that he did to those people was terrible, but I don't really think that's what the motive is here, because right. if that was the case, we'd be in Darfur. But we're not of in course. Darfur, because there's no money there. Of course, absolutely. It's all about money and resources. You know, it's one of the, you know, like, because for what, what you mean, you're right about the child in the track in, uh, in Empire in Africa, but what you didn't mention is that the people who are torturing these kids are peacekeepers financed by the United Nations and supposed to protect the people, which right. is the worst part. You know, it's like when we, I can tell you, when we went there, you know, the, it's a long story, of course, <laughs> trying to make it short, but, the, you know, the, you know we, we decided, in fact, I, I made a partnership with this great humanitarian organization at the time. They changed a lot since then called Action Against Hunger. Action Against Hunger at the time was a great organization because they were very political. They were not only going to distribute bag of rice and, and giving you know free food and free medicine to poor people in Africa. They were also publishing reports and a book every year explaining why we have this conflict in this country, but in political terms. And like saying, well, it's not because people are the kind of stupidity we hear all the time, like women have too many children or like there was a drought or whatever it is. It's because there was always political reason for that. And we decided to take the worst country, in fact, that we could imagine at the time, that we could find at the time. And, and, we, and it was, of course, the, the, the civil war in Sierra Leone, and where, which, you know, the civil war had been raging for like more than 10 years. And, 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 and you know, and, the, and what you could find in every media around the world, but I'm talking about serious media, I'm not talking about like, you know, tabloids, of course, you know, I'm talking about Le Monde in France, the Time of London, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, uh, Washington Post, all these big media. 
we are talking, we are demonizing these rebels, saying that in fact these people are only interested in diamond mines, you know, and they are you know, they are hacking the limbs of people to create terror, and you know that's the same thing which is depicted in the movie that um, Leonardo DiCaprio did, you know, Blood Diamond. You know, and, and that was all in every single media. You had like I remember even reports where you had the, the, these, these media were saying that there was millions of amputees in Sierra Leone due to the rebels. And when you think that Sierra Leone has a population of four and a half million people, you know, if there are millions of amputees, it means one person on two is amputated. And and when we arrived there, I can tell you it took us probably two weeks to find one amputee. And we could not understand what was going on. So where where are these amputees? So we went to the government, which had been forced, you know, in Sierra Leone by ways of fake election by the United Nations and by the international community, of course. So we went to the government and said, well, where are the amputees? And they said, oh, that's very simple. You know, we put them all in a camp. I said, really? Put them all in a camp? Well, a camp of two million people at least, that must be a major camp. And they took us to a camp, you know, in the... Um, next to the international hotels where the journalists come and next to the airport, you know, and we interview these people in the camp with the people of the government, of course. And there was probably like 200 amputees there, you know, and they say, oh, yeah, we cannot show you the other one. They are lost in the country and you can see them too dangerous, da, 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 da. And of course, the whole, when we interviewed these people, they all went with, oh, I am a poor peasant, I was in my villages, and the rebels attacked, and you know, I didn't do anything, and they cut my hands, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, knowing that there was something wrong there, I returned in the same camp, you know, like a week later, without the government with me, of course. And I asked the same people another kind of question. So look, you know, you are telling me you were from this village, and you were attacked by the rebels, but there was no rebels attack there. So what is the story? And of course, after talking with this guy for hours and hours and hours, they broke the news that, well, no, it was not really the rebels. It was either the army or the militia of the government or whatever. The rebels, too. I'm not making the rebels good guys. The, and, and I said, well, why did you tell me that? Well, simple, because we are paid to tell you that. You know, that's how we survive. We are paid by the government to tell you that it's the rebels, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want, all the major media went there and they were welcomed by this government, were saying, look, it's too dangerous, you can go anywhere in the country, but we'll take you to the camp, make your interviews, and go back home and write your article. So that's the result. We had all these media, you know, giving us this kind of incredible news that the rebel were all these block 30, blah, 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 you know, amputating people where it was not the case in reality. You know, so that's where movies can make a difference because media, you know, the way the media work, the way a journalist, you know, uh, um, how much time do you have when you go write an article for one of these big paper? A day, several hours, whatever, and you have to write your article before deadline, et cetera, et cetera. There's no way you can find more than, than what, what, that, that what it served to you. You know, when you make a movie, of course, we spend months in Sierra Leone going everywhere, forcing the government to let us go talk to the rebels, not even forcing them, they didn't even know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we have enough. It's why I think movie can make a difference, because we have another to other tools and other means to our disposal to do something. We don't write 20 articles during the day. We make one movie, one subject in many months, you know, and that's where the, the movie makes a difference, yeah. Now, no, I agree, and you know the that was the other thing. I mean, when we talked about even both of these films, like especially when you're you're filming them doing some of these things, I'm amazed that they didn't shoot you guys. You know, 
I mean, these are men with guns who obviously don't care that they're, you know, getting ready to beat and, you know, murder a child or cut his arm off. And here, there you are with your camera. You know, I mean, did you have to hire security or something like the people in Iraq do? I'll tell you what happened is that these are archives images which come from the government. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a very interesting story, too. You know, I was, you know, because the, the only way we had many, a lot of trouble shooting the movie there, and the only way that we could do it is by pretty much lying to the government and not telling them really what we were doing. They thought, because we were with Action Against Hunger, that we were doing a humanitarian movie showing the, you know, the, the, the poor health of people, which would give them more support, more this, more that, and they were very happy that, until they started to realize that we were talking with the rebels, we were questioning the military about their involvement, et cetera, et cetera, and we had a tremendous problem. They wanted to put us in jail, confiscate our material and our tapes, whatever, I had to give them fake tapes that I know they could not see because it was a brand new standard, while the real tapes were taken out of the country illegally, whatever it is. You know, but what was interesting is that one day I was at the Ministry of Information because we wanted to show good face and, you know, and, uh, and, and interview the, the officials as well. And someone ran after me in the corridor and said, hey, I heard you are doing a movie in my country. I'm a journalist from Sierra Leone. I have images I would like to show you. And we're so worried about someone infiltrating our team, et cetera, et cetera, that right, so, no, 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 we don't want to see images. We're not interested to buy images. Thank you. And the guy insisted so much that I said, fine, you want to show me images? I look at your images. And he came one day at the, the safe house we were in and with his equipment and, and like hours and hours and hours and hours of tape. There was probably like, I don't know, like 40 hours of these kind of images because he had been hired by the government, he was the cameraman of the government, to document what they were doing. And so he had the right, of course, and it was his job to shoot all these killing, torture, etc., etc. And the guy told me, he says, look, I'm so sick of that, I don't sleep anymore, I don't, I don't live anymore, it's so horrible what we're doing, is that if you give me your word that you will show the world what's going on in my country, I will give you these images. And, you, and, and I told him, I said, do you realize what it means? It means you will never be able to stay in this country. You'll have to leave because they'll come after you in two minutes when they realize that you did that. And he said, yes, I know. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go live in London. But it's important enough that you should, you know, see, show these images to the world. I'll take this risk. And that's what happened. So I promised him that we would show these images. And he gave me this footage. And it's, it's these horrible images because you're right. We would never have been able to shoot that. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I mean, you definitely were risking your lives, you know, to do some of this stuff. It's, I mean, I've had yeah. filmmakers on before who were filming things in Iraq, and they had to have, like, guys walking around with them with assault rifles everywhere they went to ensure yeah, their yeah. safety. And, um, you know, it's uh, especially just some of the, the the level of, I mean, like, the, the executions that are in these films yeah. are just horrific. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's always by, you know, most of the execution you see in the film are always by the government or the peacekeepers. And I can tell you, nobody knows that around the world. You know, everybody thinks it's all the rebels because of the work of the media, because of work of, of course, the, 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 the propaganda work of the government vis-a-vis the international media. And all of that, to go back to your introduction, was because Sierra Leone is an extremely rich country, extremely rich. They have everything in the underground from diamond to gold, any mineral, uranium, name it. Colton, of course, for the cell phone and the computers, and et cetera, et cetera. They had great tourism. They had great agriculture. It should be a paradise on earth. But 
since the beginning, you know, the, the, the northern countries, you know, the U.S., France, Great Britain, Belgium, Australia, name it, you know, split the wealth of the country among themselves. And until the, the, the 70s, you know, it was okay. There was like industries there, that, of course, foreign-owned industry. Nothing was owned by the Sierra Leone, by, by people from, from Sierra Leone. You know, and, and, and everything was kind of okay. When there was the economic crash in the 70s, it started to, be, to go much, much harder because, of course, the same amount of profit would go abroad and less and less would be left in the country, and people started to suffer. And these rebels, you know, started to try to fight with election, but all the elections were fake, and you know, and they, they had people imposed in terms of government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, and they decided to take weapon and fight. And their their principle was foreigners out of the country. And when we started to realize that they were very serious and they were starting to gain a lot of traction in the country, where a lot of people were supporting them and a lot of people were joining them, that you know, the northern countries started to pile bombs in planes and we dropped bombs for 10 years in these countries, you know, and, right. and, and torturing people, putting them in jail, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and at the end of the day, the, it became a, ma a major civil war, which ended like pretty much when we shot the film and I was able to meet with all the rebels, you know, and, and of course they were tough people, no question, you know, but they said, look, what we want, we want to have a unity government we want to kick the foreigners out of the country. We want to get back our resources. That's the only thing they wanted, nothing else. You know? mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I told them, I said, well, but you realize that you have been manipulated for like, you know, more than 10 years by the foreign powers, which are much stronger than you. What happens if you form a unity government and they betray you again? And you know, well, I said, well, we'll take our weapon and fight. And what happened, fight again. And what happened is that, you know, after the, the unity government lasted like probably like six months, nine months. And supposedly there was an incident between that, uh, that you know, the, 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 the rebel, the very low ranking rebels and bodyguards or whatever it is. Kofi Annan immediately, you know, condemned the rebels. They were all put to jail. You know, and they all died in jail, one after the other, from mysterious causes. That's what mm -hmm. happened. And so the result is now the, the Sierra Leone is still one of the poorest countries in the world, and all the richness are still split among the northern countries. Now, that kind of, I guess, to kind of coalesce here and, and really kind of give the audience an idea of, like, what the big picture that you're looking at here, as you pointed out, you're talking to people about the fact that they're their countries are being manipulated by higher powers that they're obviously not aware of. Um, and all of this is based around the notion that they want to try to get their hands on the resources. And um, it was something else that really, really angered me when I'm watching these films is the realization that you're dealing with countries that are that are exporting so many natural resources and all the effort that they went through to be sure that these countries stayed in the state that they're in, you know, like right. it was by all means intentional to keep them in of a course. colonial third world state. Of course, of course. So that they can never develop their own resources. And it's Absolutely. just the amount of just evil that goes into that. I mean, the amount of killing and murdering and coercing and bribing and corrupting that is, you know, it's just, it's titanic. And I don't Absolutely. think the average person in the West knows anything about what goes into getting the coltan for their electronics you know absolutely. what goes into getting the diamonds for their their rings what goes into you know it's it's absolutely 
asinine that these are the poorest countries in the world when they are the richest in these resources. Absolutely. No, it, it's clear, and it's why I, you're absolutely right, and it's why I wanted to do. I did this other movie called The End of Poverty? Question mark. Because the the if if you want, I, I don't think what we realize is that that started as you explained at the beginning 500 years ago when you know our ancestors. I mean, I'm talking about the northern countries' ancestors. You know, went you know built these empires. You know, coming from very small countries like Spain, Portugal. Holland, France, Great Britain, and all these small countries have virtually no natural resources apart from coal, you know, but pretty much, you know, coal and a couple of minerals, but like no no, no important, you know, um, natural resources, no important human resources, but they were able to build these empires. How did they do that? Well, they did that very simply because of the colonization. And the, the conquistador went in South America to talk, took all the resources there. The, the, the French, the Belgium, and the, the, the Dutch went in Africa or in Indonesia, and, and they built these empires. So now, in order to for these empires, you know, we can jump and we can go through history, you know, century after century. In order to keep these, these empires at this level of consumption, at this level of wealth, at this level of waste, you know, we have to continue to put our hands on the same amount of resources we do not have. You know, so it is clear that unless we continue to steal, you know, these resources at a price, of course, which is not uh, a valued price, but at a price which that we can afford, you know, or you know, our empires can't function. And I always said there is a very simple thing, which is imagine that one day all the third world countries, like in Africa and South America, say we will not give you any more access to our natural resources. All the countries of the North collapse immediately. Immediately. United States, Japan, uh, Korea, France, Great Britain, etc., etc., etc. Because on, the only way that our countries function is by underpaying these natural resources. And the way that we can underpay these natural resources is, as, as you say, by either corrupting these countries or imposing dictators who will make sure that we get these natural resources and leaving this country in dire poverty. You know, there is a very interesting study who says that now in order to, because, you know, I think the most interesting number, and we'll only give one, you know, that one of the experts gives in the end of poverty, he says, today we are consuming 50% more than what the planet can regenerate. Okay, so it means very very simple thing. If, if he says 30% in the film, but he corrected after he said, well, now that we are two years later, it's 50%. You know, so it means simply that we are taking the resources, you know, of the planet that it cannot recreate. So which means that in order for us to maintain our level of consumption, waste, and wealth, we have to put more and more people in the, below the poverty line in the third world countries. That's a mathematical thing. It's not at all political or whatever. It's only mathematical, you know. And so which means that clearly that we are digging a hole under our feet bigger and bigger every year and that we hope that by a miracle we will not fall in a hole. That's what it is, you know. And, 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 I, and I always say, you know, I said in all these, these Q&As that we did after all around the world, you know, I said there, I think we are in a much more grave situation because of that than, for example, with global warming, and I'm not minimizing global warming, of course. It's one of the major, you know, uh, major problems of, of, of our century. But this one is even deeper and much more, because we know that with global warming, massive number of people will start to die in 10, 20, or 30 years. But ma a massive number of people have started to die 10, 20, and 30 years ago 
with the problem of poverty and inequality between countries. You know, and unless we change that dramatically, it is you know that it was it was Marx, I guess, who was saying that you know in, in any event to think that we could you know, and it's not it's not a Marxist movie by any means, but it's to think that you know we could create an economic system based on permanent ex, on permanent expansion on a finite planet. You have to be really stupid because that is mathematically impossible. You cannot expand permanently on a finite planet. There is a moment you are at the end. And the same expert in the end of poverty says that today, if we wanted the world, the entire world, to work, to live like in the United States, you know, with the same level of consumption and waste, we would need six planets with the same resources. So you know, so if these numbers don't tell you something, you know, and, and it did, it did. Again, there is a lot of people who are, you know, reacted very angrily, like you, or very dramatically to the film and saying, "Oh my God, we have to do something." Yes, it's clear we have to do something. Absolutely. You know, actually, you know, when we talked about that, that's one of the things that, you know, your films really just puts into really clear perspective. I mean, I think that there are plenty of activists out there who understand it, but maybe they're only studying what's going on now or maybe they're only blaming it on the United States or, you know, or as if it's like a, a recent thing. But, you know, it's something that's been going on for so long and it's kind of like, you know, if we can't, uh, go in and bribe these people to just give us control of their resources, then we come up with excuses to invade their countries and take them by force. And there's so many aspects of the quote-unquote American dream uh, that, as you pointed out, these countries could not maintain these lifestyles that they're in now unless they, you know, had their thumb, you know, basically in the eye of all the people in the third world. If they did not you know, have this level of control over the third world, we wouldn't be able to have what we have now. And that's, I think, one of the biggest reasons why when I try to talk to people about the problems with certain aspects of the capitalist system, it's difficult to communicate with them about it because they look around themselves and they're like, it seems like it's working just fine to me. You know, they don't even see anything outside of their little bubble. That's, uh, I bring this up frequently, that in ancient Rome, it was bread and circuses. If you needed to keep the the Romans in line, you know, you just kind of increase the circuses, keep everybody distracted and, you know, not thinking about what it is that their government was doing, you know. And yeah. so that's basically the the aspect of this story that so many people, you know, maybe they have kind of a an idea, but they don't have a full grasp until they've seen you walking around with a camera really putting a face on the kind of slaughter that needs to be done in order to maintain our control over these natural resources. And Absolutely. It's just, Absolutely. it's butcher, it, it butchering murder. There's just no other way to put it. I mean, I just, yeah. I'm, I'm having a trouble with the words just because I'm trying to, to communicate just how I felt watching those films because I watch action films and stuff like everyone else and nothing compared to the depravity and the immorality of the, some of the scenes that I saw while these people are making war with each other. And, and then it occurred to me that, you know, the level of violence and vengeance that these groups take on each other, I remember because I was talking, actually, I had a Sahar Vardi, who's a uh, Israeli activist who's pro-Palestinian, like, you know, getting their own state and all that. I had her mm-hmm. on my show a little while ago, and... And I asked her, you know, like, I brought up, like, in Ireland for a long time because the English wanted the Irish natural resources, what little of them there were. There was a huge fight there forever. And 
you know, the but the clans of Ireland and Scotland could never really get together to fight the British because they were always fighting each other. And that's what I saw in Africa is like they're forever fighting each other in this horrible scale of brutal vent, you know, the fighting that they do to each other. And it's just it's never ending. You know, it's and how is it ever going to end? I mean, it goes beyond just the issues of like, you know, grudge or whatever. Okay, so you didn't just shoot my brother maybe on the battlefield. You took and tortured my child. Right. You know, how are you you not keep in mind also? Keep in mind also that we are orchestrating this violence among what you would call tribal people, whatever, in Africa. Because that's the way that we control them. You know, since, you know, Africa was split, you know, there is a great moment in history, which was in the 19th century, where all the, all the, all the, 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 the powers of the North got together in a room in Versailles, actually, in France, you know, and split Africa between themselves. You know, right. or you Italy, you'll take the the north, uh, the northeast. Uh, uh, you uh, France, you'll get this and this and that. And what we did, which was very interesting, we thought, well, now that we have this piece of territory, how do we control it? So rather than if you want to make countries around the people, you know, you have the Hutu, that could be one country, and you have the Tutsi, which could be another country. No, we did something much more interesting. We, we, we made a country where we have a minority of one people and a majority of the other. And we made sure that to put the minority in control, you know, and, and that had been, you know, since the since again the 19th century, we have orchestrated this kind of violence, you know, for just for to have control of these resources, because the more they kill each other, the better we are to, to do whatever we want, you know, and that's the reality. That's what we always forget is that it's not like, you know, the African are violent or whatever it is, or, you know, we can talk about South America, we can talk about anywhere. You know, is that we are orchestrating that because that's our way to have access to these resources once again. Yeah. Yes, it's, I guess, you know, it, it's hard to, to I, I keep feeling like I, there's more I want to say, but it just keeps coming back to, like, how can I emphasize this other than to tell people, watch these films, watch The End of Poverty, watch The Empire in Africa, get a feel for what's really going on over there because it's worse than anything you're going to see in a Hollywood film. This goes places that, you know, they don't go even in, like, you know, the the major R-rated films. The the level, and and obviously, be careful, don't have your children in the room. Um, (laughs) Through through much of it, anyway. But uh, now let's, I guess, kind of talk about the films themselves. Now, I guess The Empire in Africa came first? Yes. Yeah, we did that, like, in... uh in 99, I believe, it was at the Cannes Film Festival in 2000, yes, or 99, mm-hmm. where it was just at the end of the, of the Civil War. And it was, in fact, the first time I went back to, to directing because, you know, I produced a lot of movies and, uh, and I came back to directing because, you know, nobody wanted to do the movie. I had contacted a lot of directors who were very interested to do the film, but they all thought, well, you know, when we go do the movie, the Civil War will be done and it will be fine. But Unfortunately, it was not finished when we went to go, and nobody wanted to go. So I decided to go because I thought it was an important subject and had to be shown. You know? And it was, it's true, it was very, very hard. You know, we almost ended up in the worst jail in the country. You know, they wanted, uh, it was like very, very difficult. But, you know, well, we're threatened by guns and bombs exploding and this and that. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> I would probably not do it again. But, you know, yes, it came first, and after I did the, um, I did the, um, the end of poverty. In fact, you know, it was almost for me a continuation of Empire in Africa because what I wanted to show is that, again, 
where it's coming from, and it started 500 years ago. And the only, what I wanted to show is that the only thing we changed in 500 years is the tools we use to get our hands up on these natural resources. It's not anymore the guns on the boats uh, which go and, and kill everybody and take the resources. Now we have much more sophisticated tool, economic tool, of course. We have the debt. You know, it's why, for example, I wanted to have in the movie someone who was very important for me to interview was John Perkins, you know, who wrote right. Confessions of an Economic Hitman, you know, because he's the first one who explained not what we think is happening behind the scene, but what he did personally in these countries. You know, for if you want, for all the one who don't know the, the the book, you know, it's the John Perkins is the one who went, you know, a big part of his life, you know, in third world country to create these artificial debts, you know, that they would never be able to repay. And that's the whole goal. So, for example, he would go in uh, in, in in Indonesia and and bring a great project with him, which was to electrify the entire island of Java or whatever it was, you know, and and he knew that he had the support of the of the World Bank because the government was going in bed with Indonesia at the time, so or in Ecuador or whatever, you went all over the world to do that. And so what happened is that the government said, okay, I want to go in bed with Ecuador, gave the okay to the World Bank to make massive loans. They send this economic hitman, or let's say this engineering firm, the Ali Burton of the time, you know, and they go there and make a study and say, well, you know, it's very simple. You know, if when we have finished to electrify this region of the of the country, the GDP of the country will grow up by whatever, twenty percent on five years. And therefore, with this growth, they will have no problem to pay back the two billion dollars that the, the World Bank will loan to the country. Everybody is happy, the government is corrupted at the same time, of course, here is two hundred million here is two hundred million there, so people don't ask too many questions, everybody's fine. And John Perkins explained in his book that all that is great, but for the fact that everybody knows that these economic studies showing 20% of growth is absolutely fake. And right. everybody knows from the government to the World Bank to his boss in his engineering firm, etc., etc., the real growth will be 3%. And of course, with the 3%, they will never be able to pay the debt. And that's the whole concept. Because first of all, these engineering projects are wonderful. It's American money or world money from, of course, taxpayers, you know, which are going in the pocket of the Alibertan, so it never even goes in the country. It stays in the United States, you know. And after that, when they default on their debts, you have another economic man who return there and say, ah, sorry, guys, you know, you defaulted on your debt. Well, that's very sad. Now we, you can't pay, so we need your oil for free. You need your copper for free. We need to privatize your bank. We need to privatize your phone company. We need to give this part of your economy to our American companies, etc., etc., etc. And that's the whole goal of the thing is to create this debt that the country will never be able to repay. You know, we we always, you know, people always hear this debt that the third world has accumulated, and they think that it's because of corrupt government, which is true too, but government that we put in place to be able to corrupt them, you know, and and we engineer these, these incredible loans. So it doesn't mean that, you know, that's one of the first questions I asked John, you know, after reading his book, is it, does it mean that all the people at the World Bank are corrupt? Of course not, or, you know, it doesn't work that way. Is the, 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 the way it works, and he explained, and there is in his book, of course, this scene where he has to go with this fake study to justify the loan in front of the expert of the World Bank. And and all the experts, you know, look at his forecast and his fake economic study, and they laugh. They say, you're not serious. Of course, that never worked. That, and they, 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 wrote this, they, they write this terrible report saying, 
absolutely not, loan should not be approved, etc. But two days later, it's approved upstairs, you know, by the by the by the the, the, the directors of the World Bank who have been asked by the American government to approve these loans, you know. So that's how it works, and it's why how we created this incredible cycle of debts of vicious and illegal debt that people will never be able to repay because like that they are indebted to us forever. You know, we pretty much gave money to our engineering company to build this project, you know, which is great. You know, and they have to pay forever with their natural resources for it. You know, and and we have like several people in the movie which explain that. So that's what I wanted to show is that the only thing we change in five hundred years is the tools we use to get these natural resources. Well, you know, so of course John Perkins will explain. John Perkins explains in his book that when they fail, when the economy equipment fails, and he explained in two cases that he failed. He failed with Omar Torrios, you know, in Panama, and Jaime Holdos in Ecuador because they were very hard to corrupt people. They knew what was going on, you know. And he said, well, it's very simple. When we failed, the jackals got in the business. And the, what he called the jackal of the CIA people, and he said we these two men were assassinated, you know, by the CIA by bombs placed in their plane, which crashed at two months apart. Yeah. And right. of course, so that's the second step. And the third step is that when all that fails, like for example, Saddam Hussein, they were never able to take him out. Well, we send the military. You know, that's what happened in Iraq, of course. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Actually, a lot of my listeners are very familiar with John Perkins. It was great to see him in your film. Um, you know, and I, I guess uh, so. Now that you've you've done these two films, uh, questions that I usually ask filmmakers are: um, Is there anything that you now, in retrospect, wish you had taken out of the film, or is there anything that, in retrospect, you wish you had put in the film? Well, you, you know, you always have regrets. It's more, in, in my case, it's more regrets of not putting enough because I can tell you that. The end. The, the first cut of the end of poverty was four hours long, because I had so much material. You know, I came back from the, this trip around the world. You know, shooting poverty and experts, of course. You know, the, I came back with hundred hours of footage. You know, and the first cut that I really wanted to show to the world was four hours long, but I knew that you know it would probably impact negatively the number of people who would see it, so I cut it down. So it's why, if you want, for me, it's more like a permanent quest, you know, like I can tell you that it's not secret, it was published recently that, you know, my next project as a producer is Confessions of an Economic Hitman as a feature film. Because Excellent. I think it will be, you know, we will be able to reach a much larger audience. It will be a little bit Hollywood with a major director, a major actor, etc. But you will say, it will say the same thing. You know, and that's another way to, it's always a permanent thing that what, what I was not able to say in, in, uh, in, in Empire in Africa, because of course it was very centered in this country and this issue in, in Sierra Leone, I tried to say it in, 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 Empire, in, in The End of Poverty, and, um, and what I could not say in The End of Poverty, we'll try to say it in the feature film of Confession of an Economic Man. You know, so, so they are like, if you want, it's a permanent thing to try to show, to explain to people that things are not maybe necessarily how they think they are. And there are a lot of things going on behind the scene that nobody wants you to know. And and if you knew, maybe you would react differently, of course. Right. And that's actually, I was going to ask you what your next project was going to be, as much as I've enjoyed your other two films. So you're going to make a, a film for The Economic Hitman? Correct. It, it, it's an adaptation of the John Perkins book, you know. It will be like uh, it will be the true John Perkins doing what he did around the world and and showing how he 
succeeded, for example, in some countries and failed in other countries, and you know, and uh, and will will show the reality. Will show like you know, uh, Toreros and and the world those being killed in plane crash, and uh, because I think it's very important for people to see. You know. Okay. Wow, that'll be awesome. I'm sure my listeners will be very interested in seeing that. Now, so that's one of the numerous projects I have. I'm also doing a, a, a feature film on Karl Marx, you know, so, because he had a lot of things to say, and we didn't really listen to, it, to him for all the reason we know, you know. And, and again, he was the first one who said, you know, like, it can't function mathematically, because he was, we always think Karl Marx is this communist revolutionary, etc. No, Karl Marx was never part of any revolution. He was more a scientist working on his books and in the library all day long, you know, and, but he's the first one who said, look, as a scientist, I can tell you, it cannot work. You know, capitalism will have to collapse one day or another because we can, you cannot grow permanently on a finite planet. And, and that, you know, so it's why I'm doing a feature film on that to try to show that we should have listened a little bit better <laughs> because right. it's definitely what will happen one day or another. We don't know what day. We don't know if it's in, one year, ten year, or fifty years. Well, actually, we, you know, the experts that I interviewed in the in the movie, you believe that we are going to, meaning that most of the experts interviewed in the film, you know, believe we are going to this massive catastrophe, economical collapse, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, the question come always, which is, well, how soon is that? And and the experts, you know, the you have two kind of experts. You have the pessimistic one and the optimistic one. The optimistic one, you know, think that we will be smart enough to not let it happen. And we'll be smart enough to take over like we did, like we are starting to do with global warming. We'll, we'll be smart enough to change things and that it will slow down, et cetera, et cetera. The pessimistic one said that it's too late. And that, and I said, well, all right, so if it's too late, when are we going to see this major economic collapse where everything stops and nothing is working anymore because we don't have this resource anymore? And people think it's between 10 and 20 years. So, which means that it's, it's, I don't want to say it's tomorrow, but it's kind of like that, you know, and unless we have a massive, massive reaction to this thing, which of course we won't, as we know, because the, the entire world, the entire the world in the north is locked, you know, to make sure we continue to, you know, you know, it's the, you know, look, you know, we have the example every day, you know, we bail out the bank and the, the day after they make billions of dollars of profit. You know, we, you know, how come, you know, the, 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 the gas company make billions of dollars every quarter of profit, but don't pay taxes? You know, when we are in this kind of absurd, surreal world, and, and we know that we are consuming 50% more than what the planet can regenerate, we know that we are going to something massive. But to move this kind of situation, to change this kind of, you know, all the experts say it's a, it's a mindset that has to be changed. We cannot grow every single year. That's impossible. And unless Wall Street change its mind, really, and understand they cannot reward the company who grow every year because they are the ones who create more problems than anything else, you know, well, we will go, we are going to this collapse, absolutely. There's no other way. Unless we find six more planets with the same resources that we can steal. <laughs> yeah, then, then you'll be making films about the Empire and Avatar. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Avatar was a great movie for that because it was exactly that, in other words, you know, but it was exactly the same subject. Yeah. For sure. Now, I remember actually during the email exchanges to setting up this interview, um, you were anxious to do this interview because you knew that a lot of proponents of the Venus Project were interested in your work. Have you, have you, how much have you looked into the Venus Project? Uh, I'm not sure what you are referring to, to be honest with you. It might have been actually might have been someone else then that I was talking I think to you about so. it. 
Yeah, the Venus yeah, Project yeah. basically is just about um, you know using science to you know combat all of these problems that you're talking about, the right, misuse right, of right, resources right. and um, realizing that we can't continue to produce the way that we are and that we should right. try to instead produce in a way that is sustainable and also right. prioritizes you know mankind. Right. Well, you, you know, I, I think it's uh, you know, it's all great. You know, I can tell you, I will give you a, a funny story for you know for to answer that. You know, I went, we, I tried to take the experts in the war in the end of poverty with me as uh, as much as I can to this festival to talk with activists or with people and and communicate with them what they were not able to communicate in the film. And one day I went to it was the the World Social Forum, which was in Sweden, I believe, the World Europeans. European mm -hmm. Forum, the, the European Social Forum in, in Sweden, and Susan George, you know, which is this great person who had been doing like 20 books on the subject, etc., etc., went with me, and you know, and you had all these young activists. They were really activists, and people who wanted to change things in the room, and they were so shocked by the end of poverty that they started to make the list of everything they were doing in terms of science, in terms of even personal, like changing the light bulbs, uh, not eating meat anymore because of you know the, the impact on global warming, and da 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 da. -da. And, and they were asking Suzanne what she thought about that. And she started to laugh. And she says, look, you are all wonderful. Don't change. Everything you are, do, you are doing is great. But it won't change a thing. Because at the end of the day, it, meaning it has to be done. There is no way. Of course, we have to do all that. But at the end of the day, if we don't change the economic system and the, the basis of our economic system and the, and the functioning of this economic system, we will continue, if you want, what, what, what all this will do, all this science project and all this and all that, will fix 10% of the problem when the economic system will continue to dig the hole by 90%. You know, and uh, I don't know if it's exactly the proportion, it's pretty much what it is. You know, it's like, unless we change this economic system, it, it is not possible, you know, but, you know, it goes back, you know, Henry Ford, Henry Ford was saying, and he was a major capitalist, of course, was saying, you know, well, I have to pay my workers very well so that they can buy my cars. You know, so what part of that didn't we understand? Because today, what we do, we put so much pressure. You know, when you think that now one person of, on two is in America under the level of poverty or going toward this level of poverty, where are we? We are in total world of insanity. Because even if you take it from a pure capitalist perspective, you know, people cannot buy the product we are buying anymore. That's the reality. So, you know, by putting more and more pressure on people, by, put, by paying them less and less, by giving them less and less social services, well, we put them in poverty, of course, so we spend less money, but they, we, we ruin the economy. So any way you look at it, unless we change this, this way that we, that we maintain and that we, leave, we work with this economic system, we are going to this massive collapse. Of course, we, we have to do the wind turbine and, the, and all this and all that. But that, again, that is band-aids on a cancer. And the cancer continues to grow, and the skin cracks, and we put another band-aid. You know, but that will, not, that will not cure the cancer, unfortunately. Right, for sure. Yeah. Well, this has been an excellent um, interview so far. I guess you know, we've talked about you. some of your future projects. Um, yeah, and so now, oh, that was actually something I wanted to ask. Now, is this John Perkins film just a documentary about it, or are you kind of hoping to do maybe a more... No, no, it's a feature film. It's a feature yeah, okay, film. that's what you mean by that. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah, with actors and uh, with actors and directors and Hollywood and everything. <laughs> okay, wow. No, that, then that'll actually, that'll reach a lot of people, that definitely. Um, 
Yeah, I'm I, looking I, forward I, to that now because it'll be it's it's easier to get people to watch you know stuff that they consider to be entertaining, obviously, over things yeah. that you know. It's actually like the kind of how I got started in things is I watched the film V for Vendetta, and it kind of made me start thinking about the world a little differently. And then I became right. that's you know how I became an activist. And it was a mainstream film. And I've noticed actually that Hollywood is like there's more people like James Cameron doing Avatar or uh I think Lucas kind of did his most recent Star Wars films to try to bring in a, you know attention to certain issues. I can't confirm that, but uh the Wachowski brothers doing The Matrix or V for Vendetta. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's definitely a movement within Hollywood to try to kind of utilize the, the the bread and circuses in such a way to actually bring people back to the focus of what's going on around them. Right. No, absolutely. But you know, the small movie help also. You know, we have you know we have the long experience because I, you know, my day-to-day job apart from all this, you know, is to run a company called Cinema Libre Studio, and we are specialized in distribution of social political film, like documentaries of all kind. We distributed probably I don't know 120 or 130 documentaries, you know, to change things, to educate people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So some will sell you know 500 units. And some, like the Oliver Stone documentary, because you know he's doing a lot of political documentaries, will sell tens of thousands of units. But every time, you know, what is interesting is every time we receive emails and phone calls from people saying, "Oh my God, I saw this documentary. I gave him to my school, and we organized a screening in my school, and or in my unions, or in my libraries, or whatever it is." And there was a hundred people there, and they, we all decided to do something. You know, even the small documentaries, which have unfortunately not such a big audience, you know, they change things at their own level. You know, and it's why I think it's very important to to encourage all filmmakers who want to do something with their camera. Of course, they, there are many other ways with their pen, their theater play, or whatever it is. But you know, with, if they want to do something with with their camera, there is always an impact for the small films. Even the one we have because of the subject or whatever was very small, you know, you know, diffusion in terms of, you know, media and all that. They still change something. You know, I can tell you, we every day we receive this kind of saying, oh, we saw this this documentary, changed my mind, I decided to go around the world and do blah, 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 you know, and that's what I think is very important. Yeah. Now, being as how you're kind of an expert on this topic, and there was a lot of arguing back and forth about this in the activist world, what is your take on this Coney thing? <laughs> well, you know, the thing is that, you know, I think that anybody who wants to denounce something, an injustice or something bad which is going on in the world is welcome. And I think, you know, it's great that because of, even if this movie was not the right movie, even if it was not done well, even if it was not seriously researched or whatever it is, you know, I think it's very important that this thing happened. Because now, as we know, there's like millions of people who saw that and they are familiar with Joseph Kony that we have all known for a long time, but a lot of people don't even know who he is. You know, now, the thing that I was a little bit disappointed is that you can't just throw something out like that and hope it will stick. Because you have, and it's why, you know, we have, we make these, you know, these movies which take six months of research and six months of shooting and six months of post-production. You know, it's like a tremendous amount of work because you have to justify what you say and you have to explain where it comes from. And, and that's the only way you can come, you can fight an illness. If you don't know what the illness is, there's nothing you can do. If you know what the illness is, you can, you can find the right medicine. You know, and that's the problem with the Connie thing is that because they didn't really do their research and they didn't really, they didn't have the real arguments, 
will it go anywhere but just like a fashion thing which will die after six months you know you know that's the problem but at least it's great they opened the eyes of a lot of people and you know so i'm all for it of course i wish they had done more you know more serious work about that because you know you know we, there are a lot of things we can say about Connie. you know like who helped him who financed him that's very interesting you know like we always, you know, I'm always surprised that, you know, people don't know the basic thing. Like, for example, you know, they'll, they'll talk about the worst atrocities in the world, the, the, the Red Khmer in Cambodia, who annihilated a million people. Who financed the Red Khmer at the beginning? The United States. And if right. we don't know that, you know, we can't, you know, we can't make it work and we can't function and we can't, we can't bring a proper, a proper answer. You know, like, we should know that Joseph Connie is doing all that in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, and that gives you another, you know what I mean? Right, it's like right. You have to know these kind of things, where it comes from, who finance them, why do they do it, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and again, it's why, once again, you know, it's, uh, it's why documentaries are a great tool for that. Because the people who, usually people who will spend years to do research and make their movie, and you can be sure that they will have gone through, you know, you know all, the, all the elements like that, and they, they will be able to convince people of what's going on. Well, that was the thing. I mean, like in some of the the conflicts that came up about it, you know, they bring up that you know Coney's opposition was just as bad as him. Like, you know, and then I watched your films, and I was spending a lot of time struggling to find the good guys because, <laughs> I mean, by the by the standard of what good guys are, nobody's a good guy because the way they make war over there is so fucked, friggin' horrible. <laughs> Pardon my friend. Right. You know, right. I just it's uh, you can't find a good guy, and that's one of the reasons why I think. You know, I feel that that's almost engineered because if we can keep these people fighting each other forever, then they're not paying attention to the, the huge overlords that are controlling their countries. Absolutely. You know, what I say all the time about that is that, you know, I cannot go, for example, in Africa and make a movie on Joseph Cohen because I don't know the culture there well enough. I mean, I don't know. The only thing that I can do, what I can show is or involvement because I'm part of the northern countries you know, doesn't matter if it's Europe or United States or whatever, I can go and talk about what we do there. And that's what I'm, what I'm trying to do. You know, I cannot go in Africa or in South America or whatever and make a movie on the people there. The filmmakers from, South, from Africa and from South America have to do that. That they know how to do it. I, I, I don't. You know, what I can do, on the other hand, is to show exactly or impact on these countries. Because, of course, with all the research I can do and all the, 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 the thing I can work on, I can bring to light something that we don't know and talk to all people. I mean, the movie was, the, uh, the, for example, I Enough Poverty was very successful even in the third world country because, of course, we were explaining how it works in the, back of, in, in the behind the scene. But you know what is very funny is that the poor people in third world countries are usually more educated about these kind of issues than the people in our own countries who have the, supposedly the best education in the world. You know, because, of course, the people suffering in third world countries are to try to figure out why are we suffering, what's going on, etc., etc. We are on the other side. We are just enjoying the product that we are consuming every day. You know, we don't really care, but you know, the poor people, yes, they are drought and women have too many children, but that doesn't go beyond that. And, of course, the, the mass media are doing the brainwashing that they do usually to make sure we don't think differently. But, you know, that's what is important is that filmmakers talk to their own people in their own country to say that is wrong and we are responsible for that excellent excellent well now we're down to the last five minutes of the show um where can people check out your work 
Well, you know, I think the movies, we, we make sure to make them available even for free for the people who want to see it for free. You know, it's on Hulu for free. It's on, it's on YouTube, of course. It's on, it's everywhere. Of course, after you can buy the DVD, you can download it, you know, on, it's on Netflix, it's everywhere. You know, that's our work at Cinema Libre Studio is to, to use all the tools of even the big movies to show this kind of film. Like, for example, when we put it in theaters, we don't just go through the, even if it's a if it's a political documentary, we don't go through only the little art house theaters to do a one-up screening. We try to go to the AMC theaters and to the Regal theaters because we hope that people who usually go see different things for once will come see this movie. The same thing on DVD and on digital. We try to to give to to make these movies available as much as possible because we hope that you know. I always say that you know. It's true that pirating is bad because we need the filmmaker to make a living so they can continue to do their work. But it's the dream of every filmmaker, let's be honest. Like, their movie is pirated and everybody sees it. You know, so, and that's what we're trying to do. It's why I'm very, very in favor, of course, of this free website. Now, you, you know, of course, it's annoying to have commercials or messages who pop up on the screen. But at least, you know, I, I can tell you, I think that I, I would not be able to give, to give you the exact number, but we did a little bit of promotion on Hulu for the end of poverty, and suddenly we had hundreds of thousands of views for these movies. That people, these people would never have seen the movie if it was not for this, for this free website, you know. So, so you know, so the, the movies are really available everywhere. I mean, all the movies we distribute, we try to put them, to make them available to everybody so they can use them, show them, show them to their friend, their group, their whatever it is. And of course, what we hope is that every time it creates a, a discussion and they talk about it and they, you know, and they use the movies, of course, to, 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 to do things and to change things. And that's, uh, you know, actually an interesting point, you know, that you just brought up is that, you know, about how many people get to see them. The Internet is really the savior of documentary films. Because, I mean, before the Internet, you'd be lucky if maybe PBS would put on a documentary, but they weren't going to touch anything that was super, like, controversial. You know, um, you know, you might catch a documentary every now and then on, you know, maybe Discovery Channel. They, They play stuff sometimes, but it's, uh, it's very are, tamed as well. <laughs> right. They're, they're really, but they're really hard to hit stuff. I mean, I'm really glad for things like Hulu and Netflix, yeah, and that's yeah. why I tell people, I'm like, look, you know, yeah, you could go illegally download it, but you can watch it on Hulu and put up with really, really brief commercials, and then these people get a kickback for the work they did. You know, Absolutely. especially like the ones like I was talking about the guy, you know, the guys who make uh, stuff in Iraq. I'm like, they're risking their lives, and you're being a cheapskate. You can't even just watch it on Netflix. You know, right, right, <laughs> it's just it's terrible. But yeah, I, I I agree, and I do that every chance I get. You know, I try to find these things on Netflix and and stuff like that. And there's actually more Cinema Libre films that I'm going to be trying to do uh you know um interviews about uh right. and looking forward to that as time comes up. So thank you again for being on, Philippe. And um, my you know, pleasure. And when this this new film of yours comes out, you know, please return to the show. My my people would love to hear about it. I will definitely. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in tonight. And um, you are listening to V Radio. If this is your first time listening to V Radio, please check out my website, v hyphen or v minus radio dot org. There you can check out the archives of more shows like this one, interviews with documentary filmmakers, activists, politicians, the few good ones. Um, all different kinds of people all over the world doing their best to make things better. And thanks again, Philippe. Thank you. Bye. All right. Take care, everybody. And you uh, tuned in to V Radio. This is Roxanne Meadows. 
And this is Jack Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio. All right, Philippe.